0: Uh, I'm uh, really pleased today to be joined by Alec McGillis, um, who is a reporter at ProPublica and the author of the forthcoming book, Winning and Losing in One Click America, which is coming out in March. I'm sorry, Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One Click uh, America, coming out in March. And um, Alec has written a really fascinating piece in ProPublica about uh, the videos that were taken from the Capitol riots from before and during the Capitol riots, uh, Republica got access to hours of uh, videos from the social, the now defunct social media site Parler, um, that showed individuals recording themselves while inside the Capitol and again, before, uh, the riot that, that took place there. And he wrote an essay about it. And it's just a really fascinating read and fascinating to watch the videos. Um, I, I spent hours looking at these things and it just is, it's, um, it's a bit of a wormhole, but it really is uh, illuminates a lot about what took place there uh, just uh, 15 days ago. And I wanted to focus first of all. Thank you for being here. It was really a pleasure sure. to have you on.
1: Thanks for having me, Michael. Yeah,
0: it's great. Um, I wanted to just quote from something you wrote, um, the end of the piece that I think really jumped out to me. And you said there undoubtedly were some dangerous organized elements within the mob that attacked the Capitol. What is scariest about these videos is that they show the damage that could be done by a crowd of unorganized Americans goaded and abetted by the leaders of an organized political party. The radical fringe is the cause for concern. The thousands of regular people whipped into a murderous rage is the real nightmare. Can you just talk a little bit more about that? And, and I think it goes against the stereotype that we have about Trump voters.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, I was struck while I was watching all these videos And spent days doing it, stayed up really late at night trying to get through as many of the videos as possible. And it was a crazy thing to be doing, just hours and hours of them. And, and I was just struck by how familiar it all was and how I sort of felt like I knew a lot of these people from having been at, at all these events over the years, you know, Trump events, Sarah Palin events, and then going even further back. I mean, I've been doing political reporting for 22 years now and and I just, it felt a lot of these people, I felt like I knew them and I had talked to them over the years at regular Republican campaign events. And, and, and so on the one hand, I'm seeing that, getting that sense of familiarity watching this. And on the other hand, there's all these stories coming out about the far right element of these, of this, of this, um, this terrible day and how you had all these, these, um, sort of white supremacist far right, cells that were kind of coordinating things and directing things. And, and I got to say, like having, just having immersed myself in the videos that struck me as off and that of course, some of these guys were there and they were trying to direct things and we've had some of them have now been identified and arrested, but that seemed to be to me to be kind of missing the story. The story was that you had these thousands of people there, most of whom were not part of these groups who who had been brought there and drawn there. And many of them were then actually engaging in the storming of the Capitol. And, and they were, they were, a lot of them were fairly regular people. They're obviously not totally regular, like a regular person doesn't get in a plane and fly to Washington to, to protest a stolen election that was not stolen. But, but that seemed to me to be the real story, like all these other people and what had brought them there and who they were.
0: You know, it's interesting because what that that paragraph I read before really it dovetails something that I saw a lot when I attended Trump rallies, countless rallies that I went to. That there is this I think there's this image that the typical Trump voter is, you know, bearded baseball cap wearing, hang down the diner wearing a don't tread on me sweatshirt. And what I noticed and and what you obviously picked up on in this in this piece is that many people you meet at Trump rallies are what you might just call sort of the petted bourgeois. They're sort of accountants or they're small business owners or they're teachers. These, these, many of them are college graduates. This is not yes. kind of the, the blue collar workers we associate with Trump. These are maybe middle class, lower middle class individuals who find themselves, you know, drawn to Trump's rhetoric and Trump's
1: appeal. Absolutely. I mean, there was, you look at those videos, there are, there are lots of nice, <laughs> there are lots of nice shawls. There's a <laughs> lots of nice coats. There's right. a lot of nice glasses. Like, and, and, and not just like hanging back or on the fringes, like there to kind of like get some vicarious, you know, spectacle out of it, but, but actually in some cases pretty close to the action. I mean, some of these, you have, some of these people were inside the building and, and, and that, that to me is just really important. Like, and all these attempts to basically any attempt to generalize uh, about this group, other than the fact that it's almost, that it's overwhelmingly white. Right. Any other, right. other, other other attempt to generalize kind of breaks down because you can just point to these people over here that actually don't fit the stereotype. It's, yes, it's a lot of angry young men, rootless young men, but there are a whole lot of old men there too, including some old men doing a lot of damage. There's, yes, it's a, there's a fair number of kind of like near-to-well types, but then there's a whole lot of also pre-bourgeois folks too. Right, um, right. You have people there, you have women there who looked, they look, they're, they're conversing with each other as if they were at, you know, the mall, the book club, you know, a lunch downtown and, um, just completely at ease and, and, you know, really just with, you know, a nice blanket, you know, just, just, they're, they're there, you know, for this thing. And, and then guys too, like these very just, um, you know, guys who look like they've just, they're at a casual Friday office, um, young women, like the, the, the young people who, Completely preppy young college type kid types, like the one that I quoted, the young woman who said, oh, I wish I brought my better shoes.
0: Right. You know,
1: they look like they, they really look like they came straight from a college football game. Um, it's just, so there, there is this, and it's, that's just what I saw at the Trump events that I went to where you had, um, you know, a a really strong frat boy contingent. You had... The thing that really hit me when I was at those Trump events was how many father-son pairs you had at them. Like It was like a thing you did with your son, like with your late teenage, early 20s son. You you had all these father-son pairings just out for almost like a bonding kind
0: of thing. It's interesting. I was always struck by the fact that people would bring their families. They'd bring their, their, sometimes young kids to these events. I mean, I would see whole families together as if it was sort of like a night going to the movies, but instead of going to a Trump rally. I mean, the, right. the sense of like, of ostracism that, or, or sense of, of just extremism that you and I would think about an event like this, people thought it was just a casual thing to do to to politician that they love. And it's Absolutely. interesting also, you know, I was, I, I remember my the first one I went to was in Nevada in 2015. I remember mm-hmm. talking to a guy who says to me, uh, well, I asked, why did you like Trump? And he said, well, he says what I say. He says what I, when I watch television and I yell at the TV, he's saying what I'm saying on the TV. And right. I always was struck by that, the sense of empowerment that he gave to these individuals. And you picked up on this in your piece that once people are sort of inside the Capitol, they kept saying it's, it's our house. It's our house. And, and the sense that, in fact, I, I, one video that just really, I, I, I found just sort of fascinating kind of chilling was a man who was literally overcome with emotion in the rotunda, started crying over it. Did you get a sense that, that this was for many of them less sort of an insurrection more sort of an empowering event, That Oh, someone's finally listening to us listening to
1: what our, our grievances. Oh, definitely. And um there was, I mean, such a strong feeling of, of, I mean, it's, you have to be careful how to say this, but of like provincial awe, yes. like at, at having reached this building and, all those camera shots—the cameras just kind of like sweeping up to the rotunda. People were just amazed at, at, at the sight of it all, the grandeur of it all. The 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 one young man I quoted uh, in the piece, screaming as he sort of was charging up the steps. You know, at least finally I get to go into this expletive building. You know, finally I get to go and see, it, it, all my life while I want fun to see this. Now I can finally see it, as if as if he had been somehow barred from it before. Right. right? right. But hadn't been, you know, any day he could have, like, signed up for a tour and gone into this building. Um, but there was this sense that – so it was just – to me, it was one of the most fascinating dynamics was this combination of, on the one hand, feeling entitled to the building, this being our house, our house, you know, our country. Um, but at the same time, um, people, obviously, there being such sort of shakiness to that claim and and um, and people not knowing – where to go when they are inside the building because they hadn't been there. The one young man saying, Oh, here we are in the state capitol. Um, you know, when in fact, right. you're not in the right. capital, the U.S. Capital. national, one the greatest national capital in the world. And, and just this, um, this real kind of, and, and also people just not even knowing where to go, right? They're all the famous scenes, like having to ask Eugene Goodman where to go because you don't, you have any, any idea where you are. And, and just this, so there's just this real kind of obvious uncertainty to the claim that's being staked, um, this insecurity to it. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of people have talked about that this
0: was an organized insurrection. But one thing that I get from watching the video is it wasn't organ, it was hardly organized at all. For many of them, they just sort of followed the rest of the, of the mass of people to the Capitol. Trump said go to the Capitol. They went to the Capitol. And once they get inside, You almost get the sense they don't even know what they're supposed to do. They're not even sure how they're supposed to, how they're supposed to act once they're inside of here.
1: Right. And that's why I I do have a hard time with some of this, with this notion that, you know, has has kind of built up in a lot of the coverage of of all this and just on the left in general, that, that this was this, you know, an attempted coup by this, these organized coordinated um, groups who, who had this all kind of planned out and had, you know, radios and walkie-talkie and we're communicating with each other. And of course, some of those people were there and they were doing what they could to like try to reach their targets. But that is not the overall impression. You get watching these videos. I mean, the overall impression is of total chaos, um, not knowing where they're going inside the building. Um, There was that wonderful one video of, of a guy hollering at a group inside one of the quarters everyone's just yelling at each other and he's like, just quiet down, quiet down, shut up. Everyone be quiet, be quiet. And he's like just trying to bring some kind of order to, to this, this, this whole mess. Um, You, I mean, I I keep coming back in my mind to the fact that, and it's a dark thing to think about, but if this group was as coordinated as, as some of the coverage makes it out to be um, and as sort of like, lethally bent on on their you know lethal aims there would have been more damage done like yeah. they got yeah. they got inside the building in yeah. great numbers and so if they were if it was so planned and if you had these groups that were leading it then why in fact were they not able to do more damage why were they left asking Eugene Goodman where to go yeah um, and
0: in fact that's interesting I didn't one thing I also noticed is there wasn't a lot of damage done I mean, there wasn't as if it was, it wasn't like vandalism. It wasn't an effort. There, in fact, I, I noticed you, you pointed out that at certain points in, in the videos, people are actually breaking windows or they're damaging things and other people tell them to stop. They actually Absolutely. say, you're breaking the law, they say, as you're if they're the law. right. You're I mean, obviously, the law. by being there, they're breaking the law, but right. that doesn't even seem to occur to them. They, they're more right. focused on bre- don't damage this.
1: Right. You're breaking the law. And, and it's our. And the one person calling out, that's, you know, that's our house. Stop. That's my house. Stop breaking the windows. Like right. it, it, to again, to the extent that people feel like it is their place or to the extent that they feel great sort of awe o- over it, it, you know, as it's there in front of them, they're actually very ambivalent, ambivalent about the damage. And um, again and again, you see them calling, trying to, you know, lashing out almost at people who were actually doing the window breaking and which is kind of darkly comical because if you're the person doing the window breaking, you can always see them thinking, well, what do you expect me? To, like, do you want to get inside this building or not? Like there's not, there's not a butler at the front door to let us in here. Like we're, we're going to have to break some windows. Um, But there was, it's all just this total ambivalence because in fact, a lot of people did not know what they were there for. They, they had not come there that day actually expecting that they were going to be able to like storm this building and like, reach the perimeter right
0: like, this was uh, not what they i think they expected the day to unfold in the way that it did that that's also right. a thing too it, there again i keep coming back to this it's, I, I i i um suggest watching all of these videos so you can see the sense of uh just disorganization but also really kind of wonderment that these right. people and, and excitement that they're inside the capitol building now this gets to another thing too i mean to to do this, to invade the capital, you know, to break through windows, break through doors, uh, and to think that you're that you're doing nothing wrong, suggests a, a level of entitlement that is really hard to even process. Um, and in fact, I was really struck by something. You know, Alec is from Baltimore, where they filmed The Wire. One of my favorite scenes in The Wire is when uh, their, uh Stringer Bell, the drug dealer, he organizes a, a meeting of all the drug dealers and finds one of his one of his guys taking notes. He says, "Are you taking notes on a criminal conspiracy?" Right. Well, literally, that's what people, they, they never watched The Wire, apparently. Cause you had people video taping themselves, in the, in, putting into the cloud, breaking right. the law. And I, I think, well, okay, maybe that's just not too smart, but also feels like a sense of entitlement. Like they think they're allowed to do this. They don't think there's anything wrong with this. They think they're just exercising their rights as Americans. I mean, is that your sense of it as well?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was just no, there's no question that there was a, this, this massive sense of entitlement of, and yes, of, you know, basically a, a white entitlement. You know, this is this is our house. We we paid again again. We paid for this. We pay for, um you know, at some point someone's like go, going through, and I think there were some like there were some like cookies or biscuits or something that was there in a the hallway, and he starts grabbing them, starts eating them. He's like, I paid for these biscuits. <laughs> like, like everything is is you know, we. It's and it's very. It almost feels. Like something uh, from another time, like it does, it definitely feels like, so, like something from just the, there are moments where you feel like it's from the earliest days of like the whiskey rebellion, you know, Shays rebellion, you're going all the way back to this of just, um, w- you know, we, you are, you're our government. This is our place. Uh, we have every right to all of this. Um, and, um, I mean, there was the, the one riff that was really, You know, I thought was very striking was the guy just ranting very angrily about the, about the furniture that, you know, the the $40,000 furniture allotments, you know, that, that, that the house members get. So they're there, they, they get there and they see all this stuff, this splendor. And at the same time, they feel this, it's this kind of, um, provincial anger that, that you've all along, you've had all this nice stuff here. Um, uh, and it really, yeah, there's something, there was definitely something kind of archaic about, about them in a little bit almost like you know going even back further to it feels a little bit like some kind of a something from something medieval almost I mean or, or it's
0: interesting uh, yeah sure
1: you know really like the storming of the castle
0: the, of the castle yes. exactly yeah. exactly so that's interesting I mean one thing too that you know uh, a lot of liberal commentators a lot of black commentators will, will sort of argue that you know, the police exist in this country to, to sort of keep black Americans down and to, and to protect white America. And, you know, I was struck also by the fact that so many people who invaded the Capitol seemed to actually believe that, you know, they were really upset with the police trying to stop them. Um, and they tried to present themselves at various very points as being pro-police, as being supportive, even saying, you know, we supported you during the BLM protest. How are you trying to stop us now? Um, the sense of sort of, I, I I guess you talk about a term, white privilege, the sense that, The cops are there to protect us and not to, you know, to prosecute us, not to arrest us, not to, to
1: put us in in harm's way seemed palpable among the groups that were there. It's one of the most palpable things. That's why I devoted a whole section of my piece to that. I mean, this, this sense of people were just stunned. Like they were betrayed. They felt betrayed by, by the police. And you watch those videos and the early notion we had that the cops had kind of laid down for these folks is just, Is so wrong. I mean, yes, you have these giving clips where once people were inside the building and the the place was basically overrun where you had cops just kind of conversing with people because at that point, what were you going to do? Right. And you're just trying to keep things sort of calm, but, but there were vicious battles on the, on the, on the outside. Um, just some of these clips that we, we have that were had not been shown before of, of. People breaking across the terraces, these these melee's uh, on the terraces, and then of, and then the most violent scenes, of course, are at the doors, um, this sort of like you know these sort of tunnel entrances on on the west side. Right, right. Wild, way, like in the tunnel incredibly entrance. brutal, and okay. and and people were just stunned that that the that the cops were fighting back as much as they were. Um, because there was this yeah, the sense that we're we've been on your side all along, we've been standing up for you um, against against the you know the black lives matter and and the sort of left left wing attacks that you've been getting all these last few years and, and 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 how dare you now now turn on us and there's that one line the woman says she says, you already had you know. Antifa, and Black Lives Matter, hating you. Well, now we hate you too. Like right, right, everyone hates you. You're like total losers. Yeah, I mean, it
0: is it is really a, an amazing thing to see because it, you it, it feels as though these individuals again really embody this or, or had adopted this idea that the cops are there to protect them above all else, um, and you sort of understand. I mean, that the the sort of belief system almost that they are above the law. In a way, impervious to sort of the same kinds of punishments that people, BLM or Atifa protesters, which you know, tend that actually exist, uh, it is like a really stunning thing to see, and you, and 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 it's it's across the board almost. And, and by the way, I want to get to on one point you made a second ago. You know, a lot of people, when this first, especially on the left, when the pictures first came out, were criticizing the police for taking selfies or for letting them get by. But the more you see the video, the more you realize that the Capitol police were just were, were left ha- out to, out to dry by their, by their, uh, uh leadership and really were heroes in, in the sense of trying to protect the capital from, from this force that they didn't have the resources or the training to stop. Oh, definitely. And
1: I, I do wonder how, how, how seeing this is going to, is going to affect use of police on the left among Democrats broadly. And, and if that's if it's going to have some kind of a lasting uh, effect in that regard, I mean, you have these you have these videos, not just like the the, the videos of violence um, against police, but then but then also just moments of real nastiness and contempt um, by by the by the by the mob, and which I wonder, you know, if that inspires some kind of a, a protective hmm. a reaction among among you know. Among the left, broadly spoken, like there's that one scene, really kind of a pain, painful scene to watch, where the, some reinforcements are arriving, in their are D.C. cops, I'm pretty sure, and you know, metro municipal cops, heavily um, black, and 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 they're marching along, and they've got all their heavy riot gear, and they're having to climb over like a barrier, like some kind of a barrier or fence, and and some of them are out of shape and, and they're having trouble getting over the barrier. And, and this one dude is the older white dude is just like viciously making fun of them. And, and they're, they're out of shapeness, you know, you know, aha, you know, you're too fat to get over, you know, right. 1-800 mm-hmm. Jenny Craig, 1-800 Jenny Craig, she can help you out. You you know, it's, it's really ugly. And, and, and just to see the, the abuse that these people are quietly absorbing. Um, and, you know, you can't help but wonder like if, People watch that video, people who have been very much um sort of generally anti-police mm-hmm. this last this last year, a couple of years, what kind of um what, what kind of reaction that inspires?
0: Yeah, I, I gotta say, I mean, I, I, I think there's a general I mean, I think you and I have written about this in separate separate ways over the last year or so, but there's this general antipathy on the left. But I understand a lot where that where it comes from. I think we both understand where it comes from. But I think one of the things you see here is that. Um, we have to be careful sort of painting with a broad brush, right? I mean, yeah. these were these in, these these officers. I, I think again, you know, did really acted heroically, and it, and in many ways, if not for their actions, if not for themselves in harm's way, the Capitol would have been not just overrun, but I think we could have seen members of Congress really put in danger. And I think that's yeah. something we need to keep in mind: this this was not, you know, this was a a um an in, a full scale invasion of the Capitol by by as you, as you pointed out earlier, most people who were not not necessarily violent, but many who were. And people right. could have been seriously hurt had the police not acted the way that they did. Right. Um, l- let me ask you one of the questions, sort of bring us to a full circle. And this is, I know this is a hard question to answer, but sort of what, what's next here? And, and, I, and I mean by that is that you talk, you talk about the fact that this group was influenced by Trump, influenced by the entire political party. Does that, does their extremism, does their anger continue now that Trump is gone? And now that Trump has lost, you know, his, uh, his megaphone of Twitter. In other words, is this something that's tied to Trump or is it a larger phenomenon, a cultural phenomenon that is going to continue, you know, well past the time when Trump is, 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 is out, now out of office?
1: Yeah, that's, it is a tough question. Um, and it gets into all sorts of things about well, what's going to happen to the party, the Republican party. And I, I am generally, I've always been someone who's like, Cautious about scale, like, and and w- worried that we kind of tend to over, often tend to overstate things, and and that we, so you know, this notion that yesterday that we're going to be these like mass protests at all these state capitals, and all we had this incredible security response, you know, both in Washington and the state capitals, and, and 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 of course there wasn't that, I, this terrible. Th- I think we often tend to overlearn from things and this terrible thing happened on, on January 6th, a whole bunch of people came out, you know, baited by, goaded by Trump, goaded by all this notion of this having been a stolen election, goaded by years not, even before Trump of, of Republicans, mainstream Republicans like Mitch McConnell talking about voter fraud. And and this terrible thing happened and and it was this horrible humiliation of an awful off event for this country really. And, and, and several people died or, as a result of it, but, but it was only so many people and, and, and they all, they all went home and a bunch of them were getting arrested now, you know, a bunch of them are they're losing their jobs. The guy who's been leading them has been, um, has been silenced literally on Twitter. Um, the obviously, this country has these massive divides. The divides have gotten worse, um, and there. And I do think that the Republican Party is is headed for some kind of a real reckoning and possibly a real rift. Um, I thought that was going to happen four years ago, when, when after Trump lost, and then through a fluke, he did not lose. Right. He won right. a fluke. So that reckoning and that rift has been has been delayed by four years um and is gonna happen now. And but I but I just get I get a little bit worried about the the risk of sort of these people and, and the danger of that they represent getting overstated to the point where we we then end up with Washington looking like you know an occupied um, capital and and I've just been constantly worried the last few years about a sort of a tendency on the left toward I guess we could, we could call kind of catastrophizing and and making things seem even worse than they actually are. Like things are pretty bad and we have to deal with it. But I guess the fact that we had so many people worried, really, really, really worried, like people like my own mom, like and her friends, like really, really worried that like that that the entire Republic was collapsing and that Trump wasn't gonna leave and that there was gonna be this that that I that I don't I don't think that's healthy for the for like us as a for our psychic well being sort of. And there's so much to worry about. Coronavirus is horrible and we have all these things that we need to actually be very worried about. And and so I just I'm always trying as much as I can to like put things somewhat in perspective and 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 keep in mind the scale of the threat. Can I just
0: uh, I want to just do <laughs> everything you just said because I couldn't agree with you more. And I think you know I wrote a whole book about this a couple of years ago about overlearning the lessons for example of 9/11 which yeah. we and catastrophizing is a great word for it. Uh, we overlearned the lessons of 9/11 and we yeah. you know and as a result waged a disastrous you know uh, a war on terrorism that uh did very little to keep Americans safer. And I, I think you're right. I think that we do run the risk of overlearning what what happened on January 6th. And I will be honest. I initially thought when I saw the violence, and I heard the reports of you know pl- more planned violence, that I got very concerned, and I and I made some comments on on the on the radio saying, "Oh, I think this is the first step in, in a larger process of, of of violence." And I think I was wrong about that. And I think it's easy in the moment to get caught up in what's happening in the moment and think that it defines, um, it's a defining moment, but it may not be. And I think you're right to some extent that this may, as awful as it was, and I don't want to minimize how I think mean, either one of us want to minimize how awful it was. I think it's, it's also fair to say that this may have been, uh, a one-off event that may not be repeated and that once Trump is gone, you know, we return to a di- a, a new, a different normal, hopefully, right. uh, but a normal that doesn't, that isn't the same as what we've been seeing for the past couple of, of years, certainly the past couple of weeks and months. So I, I think it's a great, a great point you make there. And I think, you know, you can look at this from a whole variety of things. I know you, you, you have been on Twitter, especially you have been a, a big, uh, f- uh, proponent of opening schools of not over catastrophizing. We talk about COVID and, and the risks of transmission. And I think that's a good example of this as well, that we tend to over respond to these kinds of things and, and don't put them in a larger context and don't, you know, contextualize them properly. And I think you're right. We run the risk of doing that again on this particular right. situation that happened at, at the Capitol. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's, it's a real, it's, it's, it's great to have a, 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 your voice like that making this point. because I think it's really important to, to understand that. Um, and I want to just, as well, we're talking about going, moving forward, I want to ask you one question because you have written, uh, a great book on Mitch McConnell and I've spoken to you about McConnell before I've written about him yeah. called The Cynic, which I think is the perfect description of Mitch That's McConnell. Great. And mm-hmm. so based on your, um, history of writing about Mitch McConnell, studying Mitch McConnell, you know, what, He's now the leader of the Republican party for better, for better or for worse. And how do you sort of see him moving
1: forward in a post Trump political environment? I mean, I find it always hard to like talk about this right now because to watch, (laughs) to watch him so, so belatedly trying to rescue his legacy, it's just jaw dropping. It's gobsmacking. Um, and to see, to see quite a few people kind of like going along with it. And, and giving him all sorts of praise for having um, for having him finally finally admitted who actually won that election and standing up there in the Senate that day and 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 saying that the that the results must stand i mean it's just there really there is it's hard to find someone who is more responsible for in a bigger bigger picture way for for the rise of trump and right. In all these different ways, you know, just starting with his, def- you know, defense of big money all those years, and sort of poisoning the way that people think about our government um, as being kind of bought and paid for. His um, his role in the Obama years of of just of really, in a sense, like helping foment the whole Tea Party moment by by withholding any sort of, um, you know, bipartisan cooperation on, on the big problems facing our country and thereby essentially forcing the Democrats to go all partisan on Obamacare and other things and ram things down our throat, right. um, which, which then leads to the Tea Party. Um, the, of course, the Merrick Garland um, debacle, which, which was so, so cynical and so, um, so it's played such a huge role in Trump's election because of course gave the right a reason, especially the evangelical right a reason to, to hold their nose and vote for, vote for Trump to get that seat. And then finally, of course, the, you know, his role in stifling the, the, um, the revelations about the Russian interference in the final months of the election. And then, and then going right through into the Trump presidency of all again and again and again, abetting him. And, and defending him. And so he bears such an immense burden for that. And to see him now trying to get out of it is just, it's incredible.
0: It is. is.
1: (laughs) I I think, I I think McConnell is one
0: of the most, um, I mean, I I wrote an article a few years ago called him a, you know, a nihilist. And I think that's a good description of him. I mean, he is somebody who has no apparent core beliefs other than the accumulation of political power and not for a, Particular policy
1: purpose, no, but just for the accumulation of political power. Right, right. It's the it's the win for the sake of the win, and setting yourself up, and always setting yourself up for the next win. It's always, what do I need to do to, to set me and my party up to win the next cycle? And but 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 with no real sense of what you actually want to do with the power while you even have it. Um, even the things he, the issues he does care about. Are all issues that are about elections. I mean, it's campaign finance reform, fighting, fighting restrictions on campaign money, and then and then the courts. And the courts themselves are something he cares about, not for ideological ends, really, but because a the courts actually matter a lot for elections in setting the terms of elections, voting rights laws, campaign finance, gerrymandering. But then, of course, also the courts matter to him because they've always been a very easy way for him to prove his conservative conservative bona fides to the true conservatives. Because he could point to that all those judges and say, "Look, I got you those judges." Um, and that's that's always been his his strongest defense against anyone who who would, who would doubt his conservative integrity. The question now is, going forward, does his very very belated attempt to to rescue his his legacy um lead to some kind of a different different set of behavior, different sort of behavior going forward in the minority? Will he will he behave differently in the minority now than he did in the early Obama years when he was, you know, so incredibly instrumental in 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 undermining Obama at every turn. Um, and and then you know leading to the 2010 wipeout. Um, which just proved so massively consequential in our in our politics and will somehow the combination of of wanting to rescue his legacy and and possibly also having some kind of a different personal attitude toward toward Biden versus you know the young upstart Obama who we had such scorn for um, but i don 't know it 's just it's it 's really that to me would just be, it'd be completely, um, completely out of character for him.
0: Yeah, I, well, I, I think, think there's I one assumption you have to, to take when it comes to Mitch McConnell, and that is that he is always going to act in what he believes to be his political best interest, the best interest of the Republican Party. Now, actually, even less so his own political self-interest. Right. And more so, well, I guess that they're connected, but it's really about what's best for the party, and it, what's best for the party is best for Mitch McConnell. So Mitch right. McConnell's focus for the next two years is going to be. How do I get back to being majority leader? And right, that's exactly. all he cares about and all he's right. going to do. And so everything he does, there's not going to be some, if if he works with Democrats in certain piece of legislation, it's because he thinks it's going to help him get back in majority. It's nothing to do with what's best for the country. And right. I think we know that with absolute certainty. And exactly. as, as you know, you know this better than I do, because you've, you've spent time researching him, you know, and, and looking at his career. I think, uh, you know, I was struck by this piece um, I think Jane Mayer wrote this in New Yorker, wrote this great big profile of McConnell and there's yeah. a great quote near the end of it where she asks a friend, like, what does right. he believe in? She, she talks about how hard it is to try to figure yeah. out what he believes in. He's and like, the friend, stop I'm like, trying. he believes in nothing. Right. And I right. felt, I read that. And I'm like, well, they could have asked Alec. He could have told him that, <laughs> you know, that he, exactly. his book basically argues that. And yeah. I remember I asked you this question. I said, you know, do you care about judges? And you were like, no, he cares about it because it helps him politically. doesn't care about right. judges on the federal court. So okay. let me just finish up. This is a great conversation. Really appreciate it. And I, let me just say for the viewers out there that Ali is really honestly one of the best uh, reporters at working today. I just, I love his stuff. I'm always, always read it, uh, um, you know, vociferously when I get it. It's, he's great. He's a great writer. He's And uh, and also, I just want to say also, you always pick the right angles, interesting different angles that other reporters don't think about. I think that's really the mark of somebody that you want to read a lot. It's somebody who looks at things from a different perspective. And, and, and I try to do that in my own writing. I don't always succeed. But I appreciate that about the work that you do. And I, and to that point, you have a new book coming out in March, uh, called fulfillment, uh, winning and losing in one click America. Can you talk a little bit about that and what the book is about and, and, and just, you know, what's the sort of the major themes of it?
1: Sure. And this has been a huge undertaking for me these last few years. And it, and it's a book that actually goes back really almost a decade for me in my growing worries about what I saw going around the country as, um, as regards regional inequality, like, The growing gaps between places in this country, the growing gaps between sort of winner take all cities, mostly on the coasts and, and then all these other parts of the country, not just rural areas, but also the cities that have just been kind of, kind of left behind and, and just very worried about that problem and which was getting a lot less attention than, than income inequality, you know, the 1%, the 99%. We weren't talking enough about place and then Trump happened in a, in a, Brought more attention to the problem of these regional divides, regional disparities, and and I decided to write a big book about it. Um, and and the and the frame that I chose for this book, for how to talk about this problem, um, how to think about it, um, is actually Amazon. Mm-hmm. I I use Amazon as kind of a frame on the country, a thread that takes you around the country, um, and, um, and, and in the book, so the book is not really about Amazon per se it 's not you know some kind of different other books written about the company itself, deep dives within the company itself but it 's really more about amazon 's America and the sh- everything in the shadow of this of this of this company, the growing shadow of this company that is now more and more dominant um, of course coming out of this pandemic, just incredibly more dominant. I could never have imagined when I started this book just how immensely um, awfully timely uh, it would be, um, so the book takes you to, to you know, to the warehouse towns, to the headquarters towns. The main places in the book are the winter cities that I focus on. In the book are Seattle and D.C. Um, and and then the sort of left behind places in the book are Baltimore, where I live, and various places in Ohio. Um, but it, but it really kind of speaks to the whole country and sort of what our country is becoming um, it, it, with with these divides and and with this sort of new way of living we have now, where where so much. It's just flowing through a couple of these companies and, and what it's, what it's doing to our communities, the way we live, the way we interact with each other. Yeah.
0: Listen, this sounds fascinating. And I just want to say, um, I'm just going to ask you now to, to pledge that when the book does come out in, in March, that you'll come back on and we can talk about this. That'd be, that'd be great. Thanks. I would love to, um, to talk. I think this is a fascinating story and one that is sort of undercovered. Um, and I think, you know, I'll just, Look, I think I think a lot of the coverage of the Trump phenomenon rightly focused on the role of race and the and the, and the extent to which racism and and, and misogyny drove support yeah. for for Trump. But there is a, there is another story here, and that is about you know the lack of economic opportunity and how that uh, I think drives people into the arms of, a, of of a leader like Trump, allows them to be and we we come full circle in a conversation to be to, to be susceptible to sort of demagoguery that Trump was pushing. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's it's a big part of this, and I think it's hard for a lot of people on, on the left to talk about this issue because I think it's a lot easier to see this in the frame of of black and white. And I, and right. I don't mean that just by race. I mean, that is a, a, yeah. in a simplistic kind of a way. Um, and I think we have a hard time sort of struggling with the nuances of of American politics. Uh, right. and I think, by the way, just for the record, I think that uh, anyone who thinks that we've entered this new progressive era just because Biden was elected – is is fooling themselves. Uh, I look at the political landscape and I see a lot of trouble for Democrats uh, going forward yeah, and not an right. obvious path to maintain political power. Right. Yeah. Well, anyway, listen, this was great. I really appreciate it. It was uh, a great conversation. And I suggest, I recommend everybody go and read Alex's article uh, in ProPublica. It's fantastic. It's it's completely uh, revelatory and watch all the videos mm-hmm. and read his stuff. Uh, he, he's a great follow. So thanks again, Alex. Thanks, Michael. All right.